um, who fighting through uh, pain. <laughs> Told you, we're glad you're here. And my name is Brandon. I'm really pumped you're here. And uh, uh, if you were here last Sunday, you know that uh, I couldn't hear last week, and I still can't. So if it's weird, if I if I'm talking to you after church and I just smile at you and. And you're like saying sad things, and I'm still smiling. Just know I'm not quite catching anything you're saying. And um, I'm catching little bits and pieces. Um, And it also means that as I'm preaching today, um, I can't control the volume of my voice. And... um, And so if you, uh, if it's a little louder or quieter, I still need you to amen just as good. Amen. Amen. Okay, I heard that. That was good. I know that was Dawn. Um, Dawn's got my back anytime. Hey, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians, and we are starting a series, as that very dramatic intro video told you, uh, called Dark Horses, and um, I'm really excited about this. Uh, it fits right in with a lot of the things we're talking about. Pastor Mark will be here next week, and Pastor Mark will really, I know that he'll share the story of C3, but uh, he'll be very much, uh, it'll be very clear uh, that God uses those who are unexpected. Uh, Pastor Mark was the first guy that got saved in the C3 movement. The first guy, him and his wife, Bernie, um, and they walked into a service Pastor Phil and Chris were doing. Uh, on the beaches of uh, Sydney and, and uh, had his life radically changed. And so um, God has used a couple guys, a couple beach boys, uh, to do uh, some incredible things, now 400-plus churches around the world. So uh, we are a movement of dark horses. Now, I don't know about you how you would define a dark horse. Anybody, uh, anybody, anybody want to give me a shot? Shane, do you want to, what, what, what would you call it? Anybody want to give, Shane doesn't, he made a really weird face. So does anybody, anybody have an idea on what a dark horse is? Anybody? What? Underdog, that's a, that's a good one. What's an underdog? Huh? I can't hear you. The Cubs. The Cubs, oh, okay. I was like, is that a word? And then it was a team. Okay, that's what got, threw me off. Someone unexpected. I, I looked up Google. Google tells me a lot of things about my life. And um, Google said a, under, a, a dark horse is a candidate or a competitor about whom little is known, but who unexpectedly wins or succeeds. Little is known, but who unexpectedly wins or succeeds. Maybe you know a dark horse based on the fact of how you fill out your NCAA bracket every year. How many of you know when you fill out a bracket, you've you got to at least find one team, at least one team that you've never heard anything about. You don't know where they are. You don't know who they are. You don't know what their mascot is. You don't care what their seed is. You're going to pick them because they're a dark horse. And in fact, every year, there's at least one or two dark horses that make it much further than anyone expected. And the reason we're talking about this, especially on the day of Pentecost, especially on a day where the Holy Spirit showed up on the earth for the first time in a real powerful way, uh, or in a way that we saw it in, in Acts chapter 2, Uh, uh, This is a movement. This whole Christianity thing is a dark horse movement. It it is a bunch of people who uh, were not expected, who little was known about, who actually won or succeeded in changing the world. In fact, the day of Pentecost was a day when the Holy Spirit showed up in Acts chapter 2. The disciples had just seen Jesus die, and then they see him rise again. He tells them to go hang out in the city of Jerusalem. Do not leave until the one I'm sending shows up. So they do that, and they're hanging out praying, which is a good idea. Praying, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit shows up in a real powerful way. 
And, and this group of guys, this group of people who had decided to follow Jesus, who'd just seen him rise from the dead, which, is, which I've heard is a pretty good thing to put on the resume, uh, they all of a sudden now are living with a different level of power or confidence or strength. Now, these guys who had hidden when Jesus died, who were, were now in front of thousands of people preaching about Jesus. These guys were not the guys you thought were, these were not the, like the high end. These were not the top dogs. These were not the guys that everybody expected. They were not the number one seed. They weren't the number two seed. They weren't the number three seed. They, they were these guys who had been called from the, the boats that they were fishing in into a life of serving Jesus. And the reason they were fishing was because they didn't qualify for the good church religious school that allowed them to become Pharisees or Sadducees or move on in, in, in their religious education. So they had to go get a job. So they did fishing, the family trade. And Jesus comes along and calls them out of it. These were dark horses. In fact, Jesus, in a lot of ways, is a dark horse. According to kind of human perspective, human standard, Jesus is a dark horse. This guy born to a Jewish carpenter, uh, not much expected of him, a lot of controversy surrounding how he was born, grows up just kind of hanging out, doing, you know, getting lost a couple times. We read about that. We, we, we see him just growing up, doing his thing, and, and, and God begins to work in him, and he begins to understand his purpose, and he begins to, to really walk in what he knows is his thing, and Jesus is a dark horse. He's just a, just a guy, except he's not really, and we know that. This is a whole movement based on a dark horse. In fact, I think that's really what you and I are. This is, this is a dark horse movement of people that God looks at us. And I think we should be a church that raises up people who are a bit unexpected. See, I, I, I don't, I don't want to raise up just the people that everybody expects to do well or expects to reach people or expects to. I want to raise up a bunch of people who maybe no one thought much of, no one thought could do much. No one thought anything was going to be different because of them. I, I want to raise up some unexpected people. Are you with me on that one? Remember, I can't hear you, so if you agree, you've got to agree loudly. And so I, 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 I want to be a church that raises up people who are dark horses. And maybe even for some of you, you would find yourself in that kind of place where you feel like you're a bit unexpected or at least, at the very least, a little bit unknown. Nobody quite knows you, and not, I don't mean just like the you that I know your name, and I know where you work, and I know where you live. I'm talking about that second stage of relationship, the part of you that you don't tell a bunch of people about, the dreams you have, the wants you have, the frustrations you're dealing with, that part of you. Uh, maybe you feel a bit like people don't know that part. And I feel like this is the perfect place to be because I feel like Jesus is one who works in the Dark horse, works in the unexpected. Now I want to read out of 1 Corinthians 1, just the very first part. Paul's writing to a city, a pretty popular city, a pretty big city, a city that means a lot to that region and is making a lot of strides. And yet it's a group of people who have been called to Jesus who never really expected to be called to Jesus. Jews were the people and anyone else was kind of on the outskirts looking in. The Jews were God's chosen people. And here is a group of people that all of a sudden this thing had been opened up to. And Paul had begun to preach this gospel to more than just the Jews and had begun to welcome in what you would call Gentiles, how many know you are a Gentile? Just going to throw that out there. I know maybe you don't have to call people that. You don't have to walk out of here being like, did you know that you're a Gentile? I don't, might make them feel weird. It sounds kind of like a bad word, but it's not. It just means you're not a Jew. And, and so Paul's preaching to this group of people, telling them that you now have actually 
the opportunity to receive this grace, that you actually can now live in this grace. And, and, and so Paul's writing, and this is the very beginning of his first letter to Corinth. He's writing to the Corinthians. He's writing uh, this at the very front end. And I, um, I actually just wanted to read three verses, and then as I was looking at it, I felt like maybe we should have some context, so I backed it up just a bit. So are you okay with reading 11 verses this morning? Some of you all getting your Bible reading in for the day right now. You are in good shape. You can check it off the list. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness. Now let me just stop there for some of you. to. Paul doesn't necessarily believe it's a foolish thing to believe in the cross. What he's saying is that the cross and what it does and how it accomplishes what it does is a foolish thing. To somehow think that Jesus paid a price for what you've done rather than you paying a price for what you've done seems a bit foolish. For, for somehow you to receive grace that you didn't earn or you didn't work for seems a bit foolish. In a culture where you had to earn everything, in a culture, especially in the Jewish culture, where you had to fulfill all the list and all the requirements and all the to-dos and all the tasks and all the religious things that for, for them to see all of a sudden that Jesus had paid a price for that seemed a bit foolish. And so he's not telling you the cross is foolish. He's telling you that it seems foolish to people to see the cross as some kind of amazing thing considering it was actually one of the more humiliating things that could happen to anyone. And yet it, it is in the cross that we find our redemption and our grace the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the understanding of the experts. Where is the philosopher? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to say, don't you love how Paul writes sometimes? kind of be all over the place. It's like one long sentence. Some of you are actually really good at those one long sentence. And it's not because you mean to be. It's just because you don't know how to use punctuation. I don't know if you laughed at that. It was a joke, though. <laughs> kind of. It was kind of a joke. God was pleased to save those who believed the foolishness of the message preached. Verse 22, for the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers, consider your calling. Not many, not many are wise from a human perspective. Everybody say, from a human perspective. From a human. That's a big deal. That's a big, that might be the most important part of this entire set of verses, is from a human perspective. How many of you know your human perspective usually gets in the way of God's plans? I'm pretty sure you said yes, but I... I don't know about you, but during, in my life, I've found that my own perspective on things can a lot of times get in the way of God's plan for things. And it matters because I don't know if you've ever tried to get somewhere, but if you've tried to give directions to anyone and someone to come to you and say, hey, I need to know how to get to your house, what is the first thing you would do? Nowadays, you just give them an address because you expect them to, like, figure it out, right? But you would ask them this question, where are you coming 
from. Even the almighty Google Maps still asks you where you're coming from. You cannot get to where you're going to without knowing where you're coming from. From And if you want to get to where God wants you to go to, then you need to begin to adjust where you're coming from. I find that, man, I, my, my from is usually the biggest, the biggest issue. It is not that God doesn't have a to for me. It is not that God doesn't have a destination for me. It is not that God doesn't have a plan for me. It is not that God doesn't have a future or a destination. It is that oftentimes I can't figure out where in the heck I am right now. And so I, I go back and forth and back and forth, and it has nothing to do with God's goodness for me or God's purpose for me or God's plan for me. It has everything to do with the fact that I'm having a really tough time adjusting my own human perspective on what God is trying to do. See, we oftentimes try to make God us instead of us God. We try to make his plans our plans instead of making our plans his. We, we need to make sure we are people who begin to fit ourselves according to him, not him according to us. We are made in his image, not him in ours. And I would just tell you, I'm reading this great book. I'm going to just throw this out there for all you who love reading because it should be all of you. Uh, there's this book called The Call by Oz Guinness. Yeah, sounds right. Like that name just sounds smart, right? And delicious. Um, but that Oz Guinness, and uh, sorry, I don't even like, mm. and, um, and so, so the call, and he talks about two callings, sometimes we've, we get so mixed up because we have two callings, every single one of us, every one of us have a global, universal, God-given, church-wide call. To build the body of Christ, to be a part of the body, to serve people, to love people, to make Christ known, to make God known. That is our universal call. And usually what happens, we also then have a personal call. Right? And usually what happens, we get so caught up in our personal call, what is ex exactly what am I supposed to do, that we forget what we are supposed to do, and so we never get to what I'm supposed to do, because usually you only find your thing in the midst of our thing, because we're part of the body. So you're a finger, but you only work if you're part of the hand. And so God's call for you is not just your career, calling above career, although your career might be part of it, but you have a global call. So you may not be in the perfect career right now, but you are still called in your career. Because you still have just as much of a call to love people, serve people, bless people. Are you with me? That is not my message. But that's important. From a human perspective. We come from a human perspective, and it can sometimes mess up heaven's plans, heaven's purpose for us, because we aren't locating ourselves correctly. We think we're good. We think we're right. We think we're healthy. We think, we think, we think, and we get so caught up in everything that's going on around us that we can't get to where we're supposed to go because we've never really adjusted where we're coming from. And it's when we adjust where we're coming from that we get the rest of this verse, the rest of this verse is built upon what you just heard. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Now, I just, I want to clear, because every time I've read this verse, I see that not many, and I feel like he's making fun of the church. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, not many wise, not many, like, look at y'all. Like, seriously, look at you. 
You were not called because you were good looking. You were not called because you're smart. You're not called because you got noble birth and you got all the resources and you got all the stuff. Like, that is not why you were called. It is obvious. It is clear. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. I read it that way. I just, maybe I'm just insecure. I just, I, that's the way I read it. That's the way it, I feel like it hit me. Maybe you've never read that way because you're a good Christian, you love Jesus, and your identity is fully secure, and you've never had any insecurities in your life. But that's the way I read it. And, uh, and I, I just I want you to understand something. That's just a mirror of culture. Not many. That's just not many. Not many of us are famous. Not many of us have all the money. Not many of us have that car or that house. Not many of us have grown up in a rich home. Not many of us had mom and dad in the house encouraging us, loving us. Not many of us had this or that or been in this or been through that or dealt with this or had this given to us. Not many. Well, that's, he's not saying no one. Because I think sometimes we read this and go, well, there's nobody in the church that has. Well, no, he just said not many. What you should get out of that verse is it doesn't matter if you had it or didn't have it. It, it, it actually doesn't make a difference if you had the noble birth or you didn't. If you had the privilege or you didn't. It doesn't make a difference whether or not you, you, you were wise or you weren't. At the end of the day, what really matters is that Jesus, that, that your perspective has changed, that Jesus is the center of who you are. So not many. Instead, verse 27, instead God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing. Everybody say nothing. What is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. See, there's the, there's the kicker. So that no one, whether you had it or didn't, whether you grew up with it or didn't, it doesn't matter. Nobody can boast in the presence of God. This is all set up for the dark horse. This is all set up for the unexpected, for the underdog. I don't know about you if you're a sports fan, but I'm a, I am a sports fan, and I, uh, I'm going to make my children sports fans, and they are going to deal with it. Right, Chris Coker? And, uh, yeah. And so I, um, I, I, I was a, I'm a Mavericks fan. you any Dallas Mavericks fans in the building? What kind of church is this? Like, we are not doing our job, babe. <laughs> um, Dallas Mavericks, 2011, number three. Yeah, there we go. Number three seed. Uh, first year of LeBron, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh. Taking my talents to South Beach, y'all. Uh, it's the first year of that. Dirk's the only superstar. In fact, he's the only all-star on our entire team. On our entire. I'm just telling you guys. You can say what you want, but Dirk, hasn't, Dirk is the only guy to do that much with that little. I'm just saying. It's true. Did you hear me? Did someone just say Kobe? Shaquille, Kobe? Anyways, we're not going to get into basketball talk because I will wipe the floor with you all. But I just, I just, I'm competitive. So here's the thing. So Dirk, underdog. Dark horse, no one expected, because in basketball especially, in, especially in the NBA, three seed, four seed, five seed, sorry, nice season, you are not winning at all. It just is not happening. And, uh, and so here, here are the, 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 the Dallas Mavericks going up against the, the new power team, the new super team, uh, Miami Heat. 
And they're all, I just, I love, I still think, I still go watch YouTube videos of this, man. I still thought, oh, it's amazing watching Dirk hit fadeaways, especially when LeBron and Dwayne Wade coughed walking down the hallway making fun of Dirk being sick, and then he won. It was so awesome. I love the dark horse. I love the team that nobody expects. And the truth is, all of us really, unless we've got a rooting interest in the top dog, we all love the, the dark horse. We really, really do, until, until... We are the dark horse. Like, we love the underdog story for other people. Right? Like, we don't, like, we don't love it when we don't have what we need. We don't love it when we're the only superstar on the team, because some of y'all really think you are a superstar. And, and we don't love it when things are not exactly the way we want them to be. We, we love it for everybody else. We love those movies. We love those books. We love those teams. But, man, please don't put me there. Please don't make me the dark horse. Please don't make me the unknown, the nothing, who has to somehow figure out a way to become a something, to somehow figure out a way to win or be successful. Please don't put me in that situation. And yet I've found that more often than not, especially as I've read this Bible, uh, I've found that most people that God uses came out of nowhere. They were unexpected. Nobody thought that would happen. Nobody thought this person would reach that group. Nobody thought this person would defeat these people. Nobody thought. And I, so, so here's what I'm telling you. If you feel like a bit of a dark horse or a little bit of an underdog, you are in the exact right place. Because that's what this is written for. That's what this is all about. I didn't come for the people who think they're healthy. I came for the people who are sick, who need some healing, and I'm going to show up and do something in them that nobody thought was possible. They're going to come out of nowhere. You know, it's those stories of healing when, when Jesus raises somebody up and they run through the town and everybody looks at him and goes, isn't that Joe? Isn't that the dude who was blind and he's running with, like, he's not running into anything? He's like, he's good. Isn't that the guy who couldn't walk? Why is he jumping around? This, this gospel is all about the person nobody expected. So quit, so quit trying to be the person everybody expects. You're going to mess up the gospel. You're going to mess up the Bible. This was not for you to figure it out on your own. So some, I think it's funny. Some, I, I know I like to dress good. I get, I, I, well, I try. Um, I don't know how today's going. But, um, but, I, but I, I, um, I, you know, I grew up in church. So I remember the day when church kids wore all the terrible clothes. Right? Now I know the day when all church kids wear all the coolest clothes. I'm not saying you can't drink. I'm just saying, like, if I walk into a coffee shop, I know who the church kids are because they are dressed cooler than anyone else, you know? And I'm worried that we got some kids growing up thinking if they don't dress like that, they can't be used by God like that. Don't try to be what everybody expects you to be. Be exactly who God's called you to be. Be exactly who God's made you to be because in that you discover. Now, I'm not saying don't improve things, don't make things better, and I'm not saying show up next week with, like, you know, the worst thing on. I'm not I'm just saying, let us be people who are unexpected. Let us embrace the role. Let us embrace the fact that God uses what everybody else thought was nothing. And not just nothing, because people didn't just think Dirk was nothing. They despised him. They thought he couldn't possibly do it. This isn't just that people don't think you could. People actually despise the fact that you would even try. 
And God works in that. God uses that. I want to tell a story because you can't do a, a, a story or a series on the underdog or on the dark horse without talking about a man named uh, David. And, and how many of you heard the story about David and Goliath? You don't even have to hear, hear about the Bible. You've heard the story about David and Goliath. You may not know all the details, but you know there was a dude named David who supposedly was small and whatever, and there was a guy named Goliath who was really big. That's, and if that's all you know, that works. In 1 Samuel 16 and 17, I'm not going to read all the verses because if I read all the verses, we'll be here all afternoon. But David is a story about a young man who, who defeats a giant, and, and in his conquering of the giant, he actually sets people free. There's something you need to know, that, that, and, and I know that Pastor Paul preached this on Father's Day, that in your breakthrough is someone else's breakthrough. In your victory is someone else's victory. When you make it, someone else is going to make it. How cool is that, that what God's doing in you is not just for you? So David wins this victory. And I'm going to give a little recap, but I just want to read to you something that a guy named Malcolm Gladwell uh, wrote. He wrote a book called David and Goliath. And he's not necessarily, he is a, uh, he's returned to the faith, but he, he, he was, he's, that's not what he's known for. He's not known as a Christian author. Uh, he wrote a book called Blink. Uh, he, he wrote a, uh, another, I can't remember all the books he wrote. But he's, he's a thinker. He looks at social things. He looks at history. He looks at some of these things and really begins to kind of build a case for things. It's really an incredible uh, writer. Wrote, has written for all the biggest magazines. He wrote this uh, uh, book called David and Goliath. And this is what he says about the story of David and Goliath. I think this is fantastic. I'm not saying that I agree that everything about this was just practical and not spiritual and that God didn't intervene. But, but I, I love the take on this. He said, through these stories, I want to explore two ideas. The first is that much of what we consider valuable in our world arises out of these kinds of lopsided conflicts because the act of facing overwhelming odds produces greatness and beauty. And second, that we consistently get these kinds of conflicts wrong. We, we misread them. We misinterpret them. Giants are not what we think they are. The same qualities that appear to give them strength are often the sources of great weakness. And the fact of being an underdog can change people in ways that we often fail to appreciate. It can open doors and create opportunities, educate and enlighten, and make possible what you might otherwise have, have seemed unthinkable. Is it possible, as a dark horse, that your disadvantages are actually your advantage? Is it possible that the things you think are limiting you are the very things that are meant to liberate you? Is it possible that what you think shrinks you and makes you less of is the very thing that is meant to increase your fight, your stamina, your desire, your determination, and your willingness to do whatever it takes? Is it possible that your disadvantage is actually your greatest advantage? So let me just give you a little recap, and I'm going to do my best to give you a recap of David and Goliath. It's not an easy recap. In 1 Samuel 16, uh, we, we see David, uh, the youngest of, of eight uh, sons, and, and he's uh, out with the sheep. And Samuel comes along, who's the prophet, he's going to choose the next king. And he comes to Jesse, the father of these uh, eight young men, and, and, and he comes to Jesse, God's led him there, and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see all your sons. And, and so Jesse brought Eliab out, and, and, Jesse, and Samuel immediately thought, this is the one. He looks like the one. He looks like what I expected. And then he goes down the line and says, no, that's not it, no, that's not it, no, that's not it, no, that's not it. He looks at God and goes, where is the one you're talking about? And he asks Jesse, he says, do you have any other sons? He, he goes and gets the runt that's what he calls him, the runt. He's out tending the sheep. He brings David in. 
David is the guy. God says, that's the one. Anoint him right now. Tell him he's going to be the king, which has got to be a pretty surprising thing for a young guy named David hanging out with sheep to then be named the king. Now, it wasn't going to happen right then. It was going to be in the future, but he was anointed as king, and it actually is just fitting for the day of Pentecost that, that on that moment, God breathed on him and filled him, and he became anointed for the rest of his life. That's what it says in Scripture, that he became empowered to live the life God had called him to live. And then he goes and serves in King Saul's court. King uh, Saul was uh, dealing with some stuff. Philistines begin to decide they want to fight, so they line up. The, the Israelites line up, and, and, and David had gone back to his father. His father sends him to, king, uh, to, the, to the Israelites and says, I want you to go feed your brothers. Bring some food over. So he brings some food to the, to the brothers. Uh, he hears Goliath stand up and tell all of the Israelites, you're, you're weak. You're not strong. I'm going to defeat you. And if, I, if I beat your best person, you guys are going to serve us. David hears this and gets frustrated. He gets angry. He gets ticked off. He says, who in the world can say this about our God? Who in the world can intimidate or talk about our people like this? So David begins to talk. Saul gets wind that David is talking. So Saul grabs David and says, hey, uh, what are you talking about? David says, what are you, why are you letting this happen? And Saul says, you don't understand. You're inexperienced and you're young. You don't have what it takes to defeat this giant. He says, you're inexperienced and you're young. And David says, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm a shepherd. And what we think is small and little and, and, and not big enough, I'm actually, I've, I've actually killed a lion and I've actually killed a bear defending my sheep. And I know I can take on this giant. The next phrase is, God protected me from the lion and God protected me from the bear. It's an interesting Phrasing, to first say that I killed him and then to say that God delivered me from. It's just interesting. God and you are always in tandem working together. And Saul says, okay, well, why don't you go ahead and knock it out? Saul gives him his armor. David says, no, I don't need your armor. This doesn't fit me. It doesn't fit him yet. It does someday. He eventually becomes king and wears that exact armor. But at this point, it wasn't him. And so David, so David grabs five smooth stones. Anybody following me on this story? David grabs five smooth stones. It's what he knows. It's what God has trained him in. It's what God has put him together in private. This is who he is. And he's not ashamed of that, and he's not scared of that. So he grabs five smooth stones, takes off the armor, walks up to Goliath. Goliath begins to talk poorly about him, begins to talk trash about him, begins to say, there's no way you could possibly beat me. There's no way you could possibly defeat me. And, and, and David begins to say some really strong things, and he says, today is the day that God is going to hand you over to us. I'm going to defeat you. And he actually says, I'm going to cut off your head. It just seems like David has a little bit of confidence. <laughs> David begins to run at Goliath. Goliath is a little bit thrown off. And David throws one, not five, but one stone towards Goliath. It hits him square in the eyes, which is not abnormal for a shepherd. A shepherd is not um, this is normal for him. This is, this is what he has to do to protect people. Sometimes we think this is like a miraculous shot. Not really. The dude was a giant. His head was massive, and David was a good shot. He'd been practicing, and so he hit, hit Goliath right in between the eyes and died, and David went and did what he said he was going to do, chopped his head off, walked it back to Saul, and said, I think we're in good shape. I want to just tell you a few things out of this story. I think sometimes we think David was this poor little shepherd boy. The truth is, there's, no, there's never a time where David is described as small, little, uh, it, never a time. In fact, there's a couple times where they say he's good looking and he's a warrior. 
But we, we, we like the underdog. But here's the thing. What happens is, is that what other people have said about David, like Goliath, that's the part that gets the headline. David called him a shrimp. David called him a small guy. David called him a chump. David called him, or, sorry, Goliath called him. Goliath called him. And David is sitting there going the whole time going, no, that's, that's not what I am. I know who I am. I just want to give you, I'm not usually a point-by-point sermon. I, I don't usually give you like four or five points. To, but I just wanted to give you five observations that maybe, just maybe, what you think is your disadvantage, what you actually think is despised or looked down upon, might very well be the thing that allows you to walk in the purpose and call that God has for you. It might actually be the very thing that God uses to change lives. I just want to flip this thing upside. I just want to make the script. I just want to. I just want to make sure that we are reading this thing correctly. So let me just give you a few things, okay? And these aren't like amazingly crafted. I love to make amazing sentences, but these are not them. These are just five easy observations. First one: David had a fresh perspective. See, Goliath had been taunting them for forty days. Forty days. David was not there when Goliath first spoke. The first time we see Goliath speak, all of Israel, all the soldiers cower, they get scared, they get intimidated. Have you ever been with a group of people that get scared of something? Have you ever felt like you aren't actually as fearful as you're acting in that moment? But there's something about the crowd. We talked about that the last couple of weeks. We either have a crowd around us or the cloud around us. We either are being impressed by the crowd or we're being impressed by the cloud of witnesses who tell us who God is. David had not heard any of those things. David, So David walks in with a fresh set of vision, a fresh set of eyes, a fresh perspective on what was happening. Sometimes being around the people that are around you, sometimes that's the reason you haven't figured out your perspective yet. You, you need a fresh set of eyes to look at the challenge and the problem and the situation. It's why you have to think your, take your thoughts higher and you have to take your heart higher because you have to get a fresh perspective so that when you walk into a situation that everybody is going to say is bad, it's not good, it isn't okay, it's a problem, this isn't going anywhere, you can walk in and go, no, 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 that's not what I heard. I heard someone trying to talk badly about these people and I don't think that's what God is okay with. So David walks in with this fresh perspective and hears something and says, no, 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 that's, that's not okay. The second thing is David's conviction. David's conviction opened the door for his calling. David did not come there to fight. He came there to give food. David's purpose was not to show up and, and, and somehow fight Goliath. That was not why he had showed up that day. David showed up that day to deliver food to his brothers. But when he heard Goliath speaking about God's people, what did he do? His conviction of who God was, his conviction about what God could do, his conviction about what God had said rose up on the inside of him, and that was the very thing that set him up for what God was going to use him for. Again, sometimes we look at our circumstance and our situation and we think that's what determines who we're going to be. What really determines who we are is what we have resolved in our spirit about who God is and what He can do even in the toughest of circumstances. And so, so David's conviction, nobody opened the door, nobody picked David. David wasn't picked by people because of his charisma. He was picked by God because of his convictions. Because of what he believed in his heart. 
And so he heard this. No one said, hey, you're the man. David, you're the guy. You got some bread plate and you got some cheese. Man, you look like the guy who should take on the giant. That is not what happened. Nowhere in the story does David ask anybody, hey, do you think I could do this? Do you think I could take on the giant? Do you think I could make this happen? Do you think I could win? Do you you think I could have the victory? Do you think I should take this on? Do you think I should shut this giant up? He never asked anybody that. Everything he does in this story is based upon an inner belief that God has said something already. And he walks in that and believes that and steps in that. And that is what we have to do as people, is we cannot allow the voices of the world and the crowd to circumvent or overwhelm the voices of the cloud, of the voice of God, of the Holy Spirit in us saying, no, this is not okay. It's his conviction that opened the door for his calling. Number three, David won in private. David won private victories. So many times we see the public success of people and think somehow that is what uh, they always do. That's how it always happens. These guys always win. The reality is David had won victories when no one was watching. Like, do you ever think David looked at the line and was like, I mean, you can have one. Like, you could... Just, yeah, that one always runs off anyways. I'll just let him run off, lion, just shoo, go get. I just feel like, I don't know, maybe you wouldn't. Again, you guys are great, awesome people. I feel like at some point I would be like, yo, I, I, I'll go get another sheep. Like, you've got that one. I'm good. But David had won private victories in his heart and in his spirit. He had made some decisions privately that allowed him to stand up publicly. It is when our private world begins to get twisted and broken and and, and begins to be confused and negative. It's when our private world begins to get all out of sorts that our public world begins to see an influence of that private world. And so our private, this is why granddad used to always say our private practice determines our public performance. So many times we determine what's happening. We, we, we allow what's in public to determine our private places and our private life. But it is our private life that determines how we act and how we live in public places. And so what I'm going to challenge you in is not for you to go out and win something in public tomorrow. It's for you to go home tonight and win something privately. There's something in your world right now that has just continued to eat at you, continued to worry you, continued to frustrate you, continued to knock you over. And God's going, Would you, I want, I'm here with you. Win it here. Because I've got something you out there, but I need you to win it here first. He won in private. David saw, this is the fourth one, David saw his disadvantage as an advantage. His nothing as a something. It it actually freed him up to do what no one expected because no one expected anything. See, some of you don't like the role of a dark horse, but the truth is it actually frees you up to just be who you are. Frees you up to just, just, listen, the problem for many of us is we try to win victories by playing by the rules of our opponent. David could have suited up in armor. He could have grabbed a spear like Goliath. could have got someone to carry a shield like Goliath. He could have done all those things, and he would have lost. In fact, some of the great victories in all of history, both in the Bible and not, are built on people doing what nobody expected them to do. You have been freed up 
to be who you are so that you can do what no one expected you to do. See, nobody's got any expectations for you. So do what nobody expected you to do. His disadvantage actually became an advantage. I'm quicker. I'm faster. I'm going to run at him when he expected us to walk politely down to the valley and so we could have this little fight and say these things and do all the traditional stuff. David goes, no, that's not how you defeat a lion. It's not how you defeat a bear. I'm going to get five smooth stones and do what I've always known to do. And he's not going to expect it. And he's a giant. He's slow anyways. And he's, I'm going to start running and he's going to be all out of sorts. And you see that when he looks at David, he says, who is this young guy? Why is he bringing sticks to a fight? With a shepherd's staff. Why is he bringing sticks to a fight? Because David didn't operate according to Goliath's rules. And see, some of us are trying to operate according to the rules that the world has set up or according to the rules that our circumstances have set up. So we stop praying. We stop reading our Bible. We stop getting around good people who are going to encourage us and love us and support us. We stop living by conviction because we think if we just play by the rules of this world, we'll somehow be successful. But you know, success is never just outward. It must be first inward. And so David goes, no, no, no. I'm going I'm I'm to keep praying. I'm going to keep lifting up the name of Jesus. I'm going to keep lifting up God even in the midst of my challenge. And I'm going to walk in what God's called me to do. See, what is unexpected. Some of you got to try to get less busy by doing less things. That's not maybe necessarily the, the problem. Maybe it's just that you need to actually pray. Sit down, pray. Some of us would go, man, I don't know how to financially, how do I move into more things financially? How do I have a freedom financially? Most people would not tell you, give 10%. How do I get more money? Give some away. No, that doesn't make any Do what is unexpected. So that God can do what is unexpected and use you, what you thought your disadvantage was, as an advantage. The last thing I'm going to finish here. David trusted and honored God. David, at the end of the day, David was fully and completely with God. He trusted him and he honored him. He didn't just trust him with what God wanted to do. He honored him when God did it. In fact, you see that in his language. He tells Saul that I defeated a lion and I defeated a bear and and literally the next sentence he says and God delivered me from the lion and God delivered me from the bear see I think we have to be a people who give everything we have to him so that we can trust him so that we can honor him and so that we can be people of praise so that when he does something in our life we're ready to acknowledge it we're ready to move into the next thing because I want to take the seed of my last victory and plant it in the, the soil of my next one right I want to be a person who takes what God has done and uses it what did David say I've defeated a lion and a bear so I know okay I'm going to take that seed I'm going to plant it in the seed where it says I'm going to defeat Goliath why do we need to be thankful why do we need to be thankful so our hands are open to what God wants to do next thankful people hold things with a loose hand and usually I found I just don't catch anything very well if my hands are closed I have to be a people that are thankful I have to be a people with an open hand I have to be a person that is allowing God to do what he wants to do and praising him when he does it because the Bible tells us Jesus says Paul says that people will see your good works and not praise you but they will praise your father in heaven so I guess my question for you this morning is where are you coming from because God wants to take your nothing and make it something God wants to take what other people have despised 
and turn it into the very thing that allows you to walk into your victory. God wants to take your conviction and turn them into a calling. God wants to send you on a food trip just so you could show up in a place where people needed you to bring freedom. God wants to use you. I'm telling you right now. But you've got to embrace the idea that maybe you're going to be unknown. Maybe people aren't going to know who you are. They might even despise you. They might even think less of you. They might even think, why are you praying? Why are you giving? Why are you serving? Why are you showing up at church on Sunday? Why are you reorienting your schedule to be at a dinner party on Wednesday? Why are you getting around people who are positive about things even when things are positive? Why are you doing those things? Because I know that God can take what I believe, what I think is a disadvantage and turn it into the very advantages that allows me to walk in victory, not just for me, but for those around me. Amen? So where are you coming from? God got a two for you. He's got us somewhere. He's got a destination. That's awesome. But where are you coming from? Are you coming from a place of trust, honor, praise, of believing that God can use you even in the midst of? Where are you coming from? Where are you coming from? Do you need a fresh set of eyes, a fresh set of ears, a fresh set of vision so that you can see what God wants you to do?